The funny thing about complex psychology is that it's the only psychology we've got, so we might as well enjoy it. This is my conversation with Dr. Nakia Hamlet. What if the truth came in a gel cap and we could just pop it in our mouths and forget about it? Well, it doesn't, and we can't. But we can laugh in the face of reality while plotting our survival. Welcome to the Truth Tastes Funny Podcast. I am your host, Hirsch Repun. And if my guests can handle the truth, so can you. Open wide, folks. Here it comes. My guest today is Dr. Nakia Hamlet. She helps organizations and individuals build safe spaces through uh, communication, and tries to help us also have a happier life as human beings. Dr. Hamlet, welcome to the show. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. I'm very happy to be here. My pleasure. My pleasure. Uh, how did you get into clinical psychology? Well, you know, I. the funny story is that I was always told by my family and friends that I used to tell people I was going to be a psychologist when I was like eight, which... I don't know. I, I think a lot of times we kind of study what we're trying to figure out. So my guess is that I just was always interested in human behavior in my own family in general. And I, I never really kind of thought about too many other careers. I don't know. I was always fascinated by by human behavior and the psyche uh, and thinking about those things when I was even eight, nine years old. So I kind of just had that as a goal, and then I just kind of charted a course to grad school, uh, undergrad, then grad school. Now, how did it, how did that, at eight years old, how did that play out? I have an eight-year-old now <laughs> who wears, who is, since she was five, loves going to the Children's Museum and dressing up in, uh, in scrubs and working on toy animals and fortunately toy animals, but, you know, like has a real Doc McStuffins kind of, uh, kind of persona but how did it play um as a young as a youngster you know really being interested in behavior yeah you know well for one thing most most obviously I was just an avid reader you know I was kind of the bookworm so I kind of always found books fascinating I remember reading like the princess bride was one of my favorite and first books and I was like open the world of like fantasy. Uh, there was a series, I can't remember the name of it, but there was a, a girl named Anastasia was this series of books. And she, oh, yes. Yeah. she used to talk to Freud. She had a Freud head in her room and she would kind of <laughs> chat with him. Right. And I just kind of always remembered like, wow, Freud, who is that? And I just, I think from books, I just got into really kind of thinking about characters and fantasy life and people. And what was your what was your uh, upbringing like? What was the environment like around you? Yeah, you know, I had a pretty interesting environment uh, because I was raised primarily in the younger years by my my mom, who was single. My parents divorced when I was really young, and so my mom was someone who really always kind of saw the importance of education, and so she sacrificed so that I could go to private school. So I actually went to. Catholic school and then I went to a private school pretty affluent school and was you know one of few African-American students so I kind of went through this period of having a really robust like educational environment but a lot of hard social challenges because I was so different 
um, in socioeconomically and culturally for my classmates. But I, I do think being at that school kind of gave me a love of learning. And so from there, I just was very focused on school and college and just always thought that education was really the path for me. And that was really my relentless focus. Well, it's gotten you here. And now you're also very involved in uh, diversity, equity, and inclusion. So tell me a little bit about that work. Yeah, you know, that, that has evolved. You know, as a psychologist, when you're in grad school and I've been a professor throughout the years, you know, you do research and you kind of think about, like, what am I interested in? What are social topics that are important? And I've always worked with, you know, people from different cultural backgrounds. As an African-American woman, you know, African-American mental health is personally important to me. Um, and the equity and justice work kind of just grew out of it necessarily because, you just see, you see so many disparities in health and you see disparities kind of at times in academic tenure track kind of positions. And so the equity work just kind of became part of what I always focused on. And probably six, seven, eight years ago, I started to consult to companies and just really thinking about what does it mean to be an employee and thrive where you work. So I kind of think of the DEI, like you said, more like humanity, like how do we create spaces? How do organizations create spaces where everyone can really feel included and thrive? Because we spend a lot of our time at work. Well, and in in an environment like today, it's possible for employees to feel that companies are doing something because they have to. Sure. On the one hand, it's great that people are so aware and tuned in and, you know, that that there are so many people committed mm-hmm. to creating safe spaces at work and comfortable workplaces and equitable workplaces. But at the same time, are you coming across uh, employees that feel, oh, this company just has, they have to do, they have to, it's just something they're doing in writing. It's something they're doing perfunctorily. Oh, yeah, definitely. And, you know, resistance, right, is a word I hear a lot in my DEI coach, coach and consultant colleagues. You know, it's just the idea that when you come in with this kind of um, perspective, people automatically have ideas about what it means. And so I think when you say diversity, equity, and inclusion, yes, it's easy for people to feel like they don't really care and they're just performative. But it's also on the other side of it, easy to think this is going to be a situation where I'm made to feel really ashamed and uncomfortable. And I have a lot of my own undealt unmanaged feelings. So I think for me, it's just how do you approach it? And I try to approach it as if all humans actually want to have connections. The question is, how do we build connections? How do we learn to communicate and understand each other? So when I hear like, oh, they're just doing this because they have to, that just says to me that we haven't figured out the approach to really make connect the dots for people. Right. And what's the what's generally speaking the first step toward a safer space? I honestly, it more recently, I've really started to really scale it back in my mind. I think creating intentional learning circles and maybe in teams where people can just start to create space to get to know each other and have conversations. And the interesting thing is, even without mentioning things like gender or race or religion if you have humans in a room long enough 
they get to those things. And so I think companies can just start by creating a place where people can share stories, they can learn about each other, and then have some facilitation for when things like gender do emerge or people, you know, have difficulties with communication. But I think we don't give humans enough credit that like, we do want to build connections. And if we could create spaces to do that, the rest kind of comes together. What do you think about the maturity of, of corporate environments? Uh, I've seen, you know, my, my world is the advertising industry. And I, and I think because advertising is often a reflection of society necessarily, right? They have to, they have to mm-hmm. sell to their consumers. Therefore, they have to start to look like the consumer more. Yep. But it took forever uh, for change to come in that world. You know, it just felt like the, the old guard, the old ways, the yeah. old thinking was so ingrained. Yeah. Uh, what do you think about that? that challenge what is the landscape looking like now you know it's the way i've been thinking about it because we live in this technological age i think analog and digital right we still have people and things that function kind of analog like certain people are not doing a lot on the (laughs) internet right they're maybe checking their email right other people are figuring out all kind of technological magic so i think of situ companies the same way and there's spaces where they're still sort of functioning in a more analog fashion, where there's not a lot of diversity, the conversation's not really progressive, lots of bias that doesn't really get explored. And then there's spaces that are trying to be more progressive and more advanced. And so the question is, when we have new technology, right, maybe it's humanity as we are trying to see it in the future, how do we bring people along? You know, some people want to be analog. They don't ever want to actually let go of their DVR. Other people, Mm -hmm. you know, other people are all early adopters of all the new stuff. And I kind of think of companies and individuals the same way. And then I think there's just a different roadmap, whether you're you're dealing with one or the other. Now, as far as helping professionals find their, uh, their happy place, you know, um, talk to me a little bit about why, uh, you know, what, what we can do as human beings to, to somehow direct ourselves to happiness, because I think thriving, surviving, going as far as we can toward happiness is probably a, a decent antidote <laughs> to some of the, some of the stuff that drags us down. Yeah. Right. So, so how do we how do we find happiness man that's a big question right i know it is and i felt as i was asking it like but but i felt i would i would throw it out there because because there's no wrong answer you know um there's just there's just observations and i think you're in a good position to to make some observations about about human nature well thank you i mean Like I said, I I do think about this a lot. You know, I I called my company Complex Psychology because of the complexity of of our world. So I actually think that our, this might sound controversial, but our pursuit of happiness is what makes us unhappy in a lot of ways. Because life is, yeah, it's fluid, right? And 
moment to moment, we can feel joy and moment to moment, we can feel stress. And I think the key to happiness, at least is allowing for all of it. And instead of pushing against, right. And that's kind of maybe mindfulness type talk, but wherever you go, there you are. So moment to moment, I think we have choices and we also have the ability to remain open. And I think that that sets the foundation for really truly experiencing joy when it comes like family time, fun events, a sunny day. Uh, But I think that's half the problem. I think we're always so afraid to feel bad that we avoid it at all costs. But the truth is we're all those things. And I think by embracing all those things is how we really truly find contentment. Well, what I find happens is that is that I, and the more I talk to people, the more I'm trying to learn and grow. I'm not doing this show just for the listener. <laughs> I'm doing it. I'm doing it because I think the listener can relate to what my what my journey is. Because I don't think it's any very different from from what other people are going through. But I feel like, you know, I intellectually understand yeah. the benefit of experiencing sadness. Yeah and frustration and welcoming all those emotions in and then just processing them and trying to learn from them. Yeah. And that sounds great. Yeah. But then I'll get what I'll find is I'll I'll become very quickly, very profoundly sad. Yeah. Oh and over over whatever is going whatever the moment is or maybe it happened maybe it's something that hit me a couple days later. But I'll you know, but I'll start to feel that sadness and I w- I'll forget about the ability to, to process and to experience. Ooh, I'm going to dive into this sadness. I'm. This is awesome. This is the sadness <laughs> that I was just talking about the other day with somebody else. Now I have a chance to dive in and enjoy it and swim in the swim in the sadness. And uh, and all that stuff goes out the window. And I'm like, I'm like, oh, yeah, it God, feels awful. Know, I, and I and I know I do know that you know. And I meditate. I've been meditating for about a year. And I'm like, okay, I, you know, I have that to go to and I always find something useful in there. But that doesn't mean an hour later, like that may help for a little bit, but an hour later, that same thing may circle back. And I, and I really have a hard time diving into the emotion to, to, to settle into it. Um, do you have any any uh, any tips on that? Any tips for settling into sadness? You know what's fascinating is is it, maybe it's a semantics thing because I certainly, uh, when I say accept, I certainly don't mean to uh, dive into it. I actually mean probably right, relish. The, the, relish. I probably mean the opposite. I actually think that when we experience bad emotions or sad emotions, it's almost like okay, thank you. I'm. You, I see that you're here, and now what? As opposed to, oh, sadness is back. Here we go. I'm going down this rabbit hole. Now I'm sad. Am I still sad? Do I feel better? I think I'm still sad. I mean, I I actually think the focus on it and actually giving it our attention is not the same thing as acknowledging it. It's almost like you can acknowledge a person in the room and maybe it's someone that you don't really want to talk to, but you can acknowledge them and you don't have to have a full-on conversation. You can kind of continue as you were. And to me, it's shifting to focus. That is actually, I see that you're here, I accept it. And now I'm going to continue on, you know, doing something. I'll take a walk, I'll do whatever. 
Right. So you're saying in a way, uh, we don't have to validate the, that opinion. You know, it's like leaving it in the waiting room. All you know, it's 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 can't come into your office. It's sitting there, and you're like, yeah, I see you. I'm not trying to, uh, you know, deny that you exist, but you know, honestly, I. I have other things that I have to do. Absolutely. I mean, and it's deeper than this, right? Because, you know, it's the idea that this is lovingly embraced as a part of you. And while you may not need to give it your focus because you want to feel better, and in a moment, if you're kind of diving deep in your sad thoughts, you probably won't feel better. But it's acknowledging that, like, it's honoring it almost. Like the idea that, okay, where does sadness come from? I mean, if you lost a loved one, that grief is very real and should be honored. If, if it's that, you know, you're just having stress at work, whatever it is, it's, it's honoring and acknowledging it without feeling like now that has to be what I do is the sadness thing. It's like, it's here. It's part of my experience, but so is the, the beautiful breeze right now. And so are the flowers. And so is this nap I'm going to take, or so is this delicious ice cream I'm going to eat. I, I kind of learned from my own personal experience that at some point, And I think this is a book from like the 70s that my mom had. But at some point, it's the idea you can't, we can't afford the luxury of a negative thought. And I just, I just don't go there myself anymore if I can help it. That doesn't mean I have every day is super happy. But I just, I don't know if it's worth wrestling your sadness to the ground and trying to win it over. That, that's, that's something that I, that I also got from meditation earlier today was you know the positive self-talk versus negative self-talk or or not about image not about self-image but the trying to beat down that that negativity is a losing you're if it's all you and you're doing the battle and it's your (laughs) your good ego versus your bad ego at work why are you trying to defeat yourself essentially just you know just step away and be like okay you know step outside of it a little bit there's a there's a battle going on you know just just step outside of it for a minute and be aware of it now let's talk a little bit about professional professionally speaking professional kind of psychological health sure in that in that sense um, trying to achieve your your dreams uh, you know are we are we setting goals too far ahead? Mm. Or is that a good is a good thing to have that horizon that we're always looking to, or is it a little bit overwhelming to do that? I mean, again, it's funny. It, I kind of see these as some as similar struggles. I think ambition is a wonderful thing, but I don't think we trust ourselves and the process enough, you know, to kind of like. And I I'm guilty of this as the next person. When you're ambitious, you're like have these goals, but then you're measuring your progress to the goal. And the distance that still remains versus the progress you've made. So I I just, I don't know if we spend enough time saying like, wow, look how much progress I've made from 10 years ago. Yeah, there's still, there's always going to be things I want to do more. Uh, But I I just think we live in a culture that kind of teaches us to obsessively pursue um, achievements and things and money and titles. Truth Tastes Funny came from a stage show that I was that I am developing. 
So it was originally going to be comedy and music, and it was it was going to touch on some things, but it was going to be like semi-autobiographical comedy and music, let's put it that way. Mm-hmm. Um, and then the opportunity to do the podcast came up, and that led to the opportunity to talk to people. And now I think that... Uh, and then I was going to include a book, but I, I had a different idea for the book. Now I think the book could be about th- what I've learned in the in the journey of these conversations. One of the things that I keep coming back to hearing that my guests keep bringing up is judgment. Oh. And from different points of view. Yeah. But our relationship with the judgment and opinions of others, in many cases, that can determine whether we think we've succeeded or not what are your thoughts on that it's so true i mean and it's interesting because i think inherently we think like oh our thoughts like you said are are things we should contend with and our you know our minds our thoughts are here to help us but the truth is you kind of have to focus your mind and your thoughts and there is a part of everyone that is you know fearful or judgmental and I think it's also noticing. I, I, I think it's the same thing that like, okay, am I judging myself? Am I judging other people? It's a natural human tendency to do so. The question is, how far do we take it? I mean, if you want to do better and you're judging that you're not quite where you want to be, that's learning. That could be objective information. But if we get into self-criticism and, you know, self-flagellation you know, beating yourself up about something or, you know, judging other people and on some standard that makes them not want to spend time with us or be in relationship with us, then I mean, then it's worth considering. But yeah, judgment is kind of part of our nature, though, I th- I think. Yeah, that's another one that's hard to get. Again, intellectually, we can we can understand that that uh, create constructive criticism. You know, we're trying to, you know, I, I've been, I have five kids. I've tried to teach them, you know, about what constructive criticism is. And, and some of them have, have learned it. Mm -hmm. Uh, They've all absorbed some of it. I mean, they range in age, so they're going to obviously be at different stages of their relationship with that. Yeah. But that's been, I would say, the cent and remains the central piece uh, and and their happiness, I think, and all all of our happiness has so is so intertwined with opinion, with other people's opinion. And because we, to your point, we can't completely divorce ourselves from external input. Yeah. We don't we don't benefit completely from that. You know, how do we how do we maintain a healthy healthy relationship with opinion versus judgment and then and then where does that did what it was your experience did you experience judgment expectation uh criticism things like that as a as a child and student and young you know young adult absolutely i mean that's the thing right like our parents do their best they don't mean to kind of sometimes impart wounds of their own on us or yeah their own ideas about things or their own fears and so 
for sure, I've over the years gotten messages about what I should do, what I shouldn't do, and you know, if I'm doing a good job. And over time, I think it comes down to how strong a sense of self-esteem and self-efficacy you have so that when judgment comes, either from yourself or someone else, you can kind of say, you know, I am actually a good person and I'm doing pretty great. And and to me, if you yeah. can really deeply feel that, that you are a worthy and good person, then the judgment kind of doesn't stick in the same way. I think when there is some insecurity, which we all have, and people tap into it with their judgment, it hurts more than it would if we had already kind of worked through the judging of ourselves, if that makes sense. Right, right. And what about um, technology, the role that technology plays in making our lives better? And is it impeding our our personal growth, do you think? You know, I think it's the culture more than the technology. And I say that because as... as, as we kind of briefly talked about, you know, as they're trying to figure out how do robots, how do they teach robots to be human, sentient, right? Um, it's really kind of, that kind of research has given me a real eye-opening look at like, okay, is this what humanity is objectively? When you, when you kind of see what they're trying to kind of impart to machines, then that's not the part that, the technology part isn't the part that makes us isn't the problem. I mean, maybe I'm complicating this, but mm-hmm. I think it's the culture. I, I I don't think it's the actual technology. It's what we use technology for. It's how technology has kind of evolved because of our for, for capitalism and our culture's tendency towards work and achievement. I mean, if we were all on Instagram, you know, posting our flowers or art we made. Yeah. Would it be bad technology? Yeah. No, but that's not what we use it for. Well, we also don't want, we, 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 we rail against being controlled. Yeah. Regardless of where you are on the, uh, on, the, on the political spectrum or any issues, what I think we, we all have in common as a society, as a global society, is we, some people want to be told what to do, of course. Some people like to, to, to key into something that keeps their lives simple and then they just follow and that's what but still those people don't want to be told what to do so if they if they choose a system that guides them that's their that is literally their choice so they want to be able to choose even the system that that may be restrictive but they want to choose that system they don't want someone to choose a system for them so you know we we rail against control, yeah. but with self with self determination comes responsibility. Sure, right. And so, um, are we are we nowadays with all the stuff that we've been going through? Um, do you find people seizing control more or relinquishing it? You know, I I think humans. I mean, I tend to think in kind of broad strokes sometimes but like we have love and we have fear and love is things you love to do your family your friends hobbies passions and creative energy all that stuff and fear is anger and that gut reaction and I I just think we live in a 
world that in, that keeps us in that fear place, so like fear that there's not enough, fear that people are going to steal my rights or take something from me, fear of violence. And so I think people are much more in that, like, I got to hold on to control out of fear. I don't think it comes from a place of well-being. I think it's just like right. we feel like we're grappling for these limited resources. Yeah. Well, we're also, you know, there's two sides to every, sure. like, what, nature has has uh, endowed us with, it's funny, you, you, you've said a couple of times, you know, I hope I'm not getting too complex. And, and it's funny because your, your company's called Complex Psychology. <laughs> and if I had my way and I could open a, a company, I would call it Simpleton. <laughs> Because, because that's my my goal. Yeah. I always complicate things. I complicate, you know, creative ideas. Yeah. I complicate, you know, and I'm a good problem solver in some ways. Yeah. But I'm also but I'm also like overthink simple things. So we're blessed with this duality of of simplicity and complexity, and um, and I and I I don't know what the uh, what the ba- how to swing that into into great balance but i know that we're just like we just know how to how to complicate things we know how to introduce even in our inventions right even in our even in uh, what is it like in the um, in the psychological community uh, among psychologists among your peers uh what are some of the 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 challenges that they're facing these days and that and is there is there any kind of disruption in the within the community about how best to deal with some of the some of the PTSD and traumas that people are going through I mean I think for one thing the demand is is overwhelming I mean I think COVID through COVID people realize like oh maybe therapy is helpful maybe I need therapy maybe I should talk to someone right and what that means is the demand is great and the number of clinicians that, that are able to meet that or therapists is, is, is not matching it. So I think the challenge now is figuring out, you know, how do we use these, these technological tools to reach more people? Are we able to help people help themselves? Um, and then it's ongoing. I think one real challenge is that one thing is as therapists, we're still dealing with our own trauma from all the things that have happened in the last two years. And then it hasn't ended. I mean, every day you turn the news on and it's like the next part of the puzzle. So how do you help people when you're also kind of gain, trying to gain your own equilibrium and manage? I think it's really hard. Given that we need, because I thought of this right away when COVID was going on and we would see uh, medical professions professionals becoming overwhelmed, especially yeah. in the uh, geographical, you know, in the locations where it was, you know, New York and New Jersey and and Connecticut, yeah. even probably, and um, you know, were what can we as lay people do to kind of return the the favor and help? You know, just like is there is there a, something in that dynamic? Because it's a relationship like any other, yeah. you know. And sometimes we abuse almost the providers that we need the most. You know, we take them for granted, or we're so desperate that we just don't 
we can't we can't th- worry ourselves with burnout and other issues. Is there something we can do for the medical and psychological? That's a that's a really excellent question. I mean, it's thoughtful that you would even ask that. I mean, it kind of goes back to what you said before that everyone is focused on what do I want and my rights and what's best for me. And I think if we could collectively realize that in a lot of cases, what's best for us as individuals is what's best for all of us. So, I mean, when the COVID was going on with the nursing staff and the doctors, it's like they were telling people like, wear masks, you know, don't be in groups because we can't handle this many people getting sick. And people are like, no, I don't want to wear a mask or no, I want to have my family over. So I think more and more, if we could think about what would serve all of us at this point, versus maybe an individual need. I mean, I don't know if that's going to happen, but to me, it's it's taken a collective kind of perspective more than what's just best for me and my family. Maybe it comes down to just just doing, just trying, being partners at least in our in our mental health and the mental health of others. If we maybe saw ourselves a little bit more like like doctors, like medical professionals and and health as a parent, you know, certainly we're responsible for the mental health of our children. We're not responsible from a clinical point of view or from a professional point of view, but we're partners in that with our schools, with our with with doctors, with 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 everybody, right? Um, so maybe if we took just a partnership approach instead of a service provider approach, you know, you're here to provide a service, like with everything, you're here to provide a service. Let's, let's, let's get back to that human level of, of, you know, how can we help everybody do their job? How can I help? If we could take those words and maybe throw those out a little more. (laughs) So true. Maybe that's helpful. It takes a village, right? Uh, It's just not like that so much anymore. Yeah, I think the answer isn't in, let's put it this way, we know this much. The answer isn't in pushing each other away or pulling ourselves apart. Uh, families, families is a great place to start. Um, you know, it would be great to see people be able to have conversations again about it, about anything, you know. If families had, this has become a great, a big thing on social media, the AMAs, mm. right? They ask me anything mm-hmm. sessions. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. It's like, and yet you can't go to your mother's house for dinner and in some cases and have a come and ask me anything because you have to avoid topics, you know? You're right. I mean, <laughs> it's just how do we get back to humanity? And, and that's it. Like conversations, you know, honesty, transparency. And I don't know. I just feel like we're all kind of overwhelmed these days. And I think it's hard to find spaces where you feel like you can kind of have honest conversations without repercussions. And the political stuff is so derisive that people are cautious about having those conversations. So it's just it's just challenging, I think, challenging times. Well, it's fortunate that you had the clarity that you had at eight years old <laughs> to know that the work that you're doing now would be so important. Um, it's a good, you, you, you know, you may not have, have jumped ahead, but you definitely had some, some clarity 
about the human condition at a young age. And I, I think we're all better for it. Uh, so thank you for coming on. And thank you for, for introducing uh, what you do to our audience, certainly. And it's, it's been a pleasure speaking with you. Same. And thank you for having me. And, and keep up the great work. I mean, these are important conversations. So I, I'm grateful to people like you who are having these spaces for these conversations. Thanks so much for tuning into Truth Tastes Funny. If you enjoyed the experience, please leave a five-star review and share this podcast with your friends.